Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome you here for the inaugural lecture of our new Montague Burton Chair, Professor Ivor Newman. Uh, I'm Kimberly Hutchings, the head of the International Relations Department. Uh, before I say a few words about Ivor, who's going to be speaking to us tonight on the topic of international relations and social science, just a couple of housekeeping things. One is I'm asked to draw your attention to the Twitter hashtag up there, so you can send whatever messages you like about what Professor Newman is saying during the course of the evening. Um, the other is that we have a reception for everybody here that you're all very welcome to attend, which will take place on the fourth floor of the old building where the Beavers Retreat used to be afterwards. So if you want to join us for a glass of wine and uh, a few nibbles, then please do come along after the lecture is finished. Okay, it's, it's a real delight to introduce Ivor as our new Montague Burton Chair. He's the latest in a line of very highly distinguished scholars, uh, starting with Charles Manning, I believe. I hope I've got that right. I should look at Pete, who is the expert on these things. I know he's somewhere. Ah, yes, I saw him down there. Um, and including many luminaries uh, uh, in recent years, Susan Strange, Chris Hill, Fred Halliday, and lastly, Barry Bazan, who's here in the audience, audience and it's very nice to see him here. Uh, Ivor is the author of very many distinguished works. Uh, he's been an extremely prolific writer ever since he started his academic career, even before he's finished his PhD, which is slightly irritating for those of us who took a lot longer to start publishing. Uh, well known, for instance, for his books around uh, identity and international relations. We have Russia and the idea of Europe, uh, and also uses of the other, the Eastern European identity formation. A huge variety of, of articles and commentary, some really important work on Foucault and governmentality. And recently, a series of works related to diplomacy and the nature of diplomacy, including At Home with the Diplomats, an ethnography of a European foreign ministry, uh, which relates Ivor's time actually working as a diplomat for the Norwegian foreign ministry. In some ways, you could say unusually for an IR scholar, but actually I think very much in the tradition of IR at the LSE, Ivor has a very varied background. He's got a background in languages and in political science, but also in social anthropology. He's one of the few people to have done a double doctorate. He did a doctorate in IR and a doctorate in social anthropology. And for that reason, of course, he is a particularly suitable person to speak on the topic that he's going to speak to us about tonight. International relations as a social science. Ivor, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Oh, let's see now. There is the question of height. It used to be that you'd ask people to turn off the telephones, and now you positively ask them to, 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 to put them on. Yeah, it's as they say in rock concerts, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, could we get this damn thing? Ah, excellent. Thank you. Hmm. It is customary to begin inaugurals with a word of two of thanks. Customs, customs are not to be taken lightly. I became a social scientist because I was flabbergasted by the fact that most humans, in most places, most of the time, managed to live in relative peace with one another and wanted to find out how this could be. The key reason for this is, I think, to do with customs. 
We keep on keeping on and thank God for that. So let me honor custom and thank you for electing me and let me thank you again for welcoming me so warmly. Speaking as a legal alien, I should also like to add a word of thanks on political grounds. I should like to thank you a third time for having taken me into the country and into British IR. Although functionally the days of the nation state may be counted, the nation state very much remains a social fact. As we may see from the somewhat terse debate about immigration to this country, or indeed to most if not all countries, it is not a foregone conclusion that foreign workers should be warmly welcomed. Since Sir Montague Burton refinanced what used to be the Sir Ernest Castle Professorship of International Relations at the LSE in 1936, it has been held by seven people. The first holder, as you pointed out, Charles Manning, was a South African. The antepenultimate holder, Fred Halliday, was an Irishman, and my predecessor, Barry Buzan, holds dual Canadian and British citizenships. Coming as they were from the home country or from former colonies, none of them was an alien. Neither have there been any alien holders of the other I.R. Montague Burton professorship at Oxford, Oxford, or the Montague Burton professorship of industrial relations at Cambridge and at Leeds. Filling the chair with an alien must be in the spirit of Sir Montague Burton, who himself immigrated to this country from Kaunas under the name Moishe Osinski in 1900. It is also in the historical spirit of intellectual work in, Euro in the European tradition, as well as in other long-standing intellectual traditions, like the one emanating from the Persian world, roaming scientists were the historical rule. I am happy to embody a long-standing intellectual tradition that globalization has helped bring back at an unprecedented scale. In the old days, one of the key reasons why scientists traveled was to seek out opposite numbers. Scientists were few and far between, and when they tired of exchanging letters, they had to take their conversations where they could find them. Science was a unitary concept, so these conversations were typically wide-ranging. This is not the situation today. The last couple of centuries saw an explosion in the production of knowledge. In order for individual scholars to keep up, new disciplines have split off from old ones. The ongoing splitting up of academic inquiry has consequences for each and every discipline, and I do not think we discuss them and their consequences enough. The inaugural is a customary topos for such stock-taking. This is why I have chosen as my topic today how international relations is holding up as a social science and how it relates to other scientific approaches to understanding its subject matter, which is political and social life that plays out in a setting where there is a plurality of polities. I will begin by looking at some areas in which I think IR still has some way to go in order to come across as a fully-fledged social science. I will end by discussing how IR should relate to other sciences that concern themselves with the same subject matter. I am thinking here first and foremost of psychology and biology. In a piece published in 2001, Buzan and Little noted an assumption that IR is a backward social science in and out of the discipline, and themselves charged that IR remains curiously insulated from the other social sciences. By choosing this approach to assessing the discipline, they have set uh, an example for the rest of us. 
I will single out three characteristics of a social science and ask how we are doing. I follow custom to the letter and come up with three areas for British IR traditionally thinks in threes. The first area in which there is ample room for improvement is to do with history and the need to study the full universe of courses. The second thing that must be in place for a social science to be worthy of the name is a full gamut of tools, data collection, methodology, theory, meta-theory. The third and final characteristic that I want to discuss concerns the relationship of IR to the non-academic world and the need for some degree of autonomy. This is not the place to discuss the emergence of IR as a discipline, but first and foremost, it took place in opposition to the discipline of history. History was the, mon- was the main originary other of the social sciences. The academic study of history was, not totally unfairly, seen by early social scientists as a kind of ideographic telling of stories that the nomothetic stories told by social sciences were supposed to replace. As an example, let me turn to the relationship between the first holder of the LSE, Montague Burton chair, Charles Manning, and the man who was supposed to be his right hand, his amanuensis, Martin White. Manning was set on professionalizing IR as a social discipline. He sometimes referred to it as a social quasi-sociology and spent considerable efforts at making the discipline compatible with other social disciplines. White, an historian by training and a Christian by conviction, wanted IR to set up camp in the humanities. There are no traces of social theory in Martin White's work. Instead of attempting creative leaps that could bring forward new insights, he remained content with collecting facts and categorizing them. And indeed, instead of analyzing them with a view to their specific area of validity, rather speculating about what their world historical meaning might be. Martin White's principal follower and posthumous editor, Hedley Bull, said it best. White's was a project of historiosophy. Small wonder that Manning was a bit miffed. Embracing historiosophy is reactionary in the literal sense of the word. For treating historical matters as part of an imminent plan, religious, evolutionary, or otherwise, is a return to how we thought about social matters in general before the emergence of the social sciences. The very earliest sociologists, people like Kant, Marx, and Spencer, were not fully successful in tearing themselves away from historiosophy, and that detracts from the value of their working methods for us today. Durkheim and Weber, on the other hand, were both historical thinkers, and matters historical dominate their work. They remain the acts to follow. Key early IR scholars were acutely aware of this and behaved accordingly. E.H. Carr was decisively influenced by German social science, mainly through the towering figure of early sociology of knowledge, Karl Mannheim. Morgenthau was a Weberian. In the larger picture, the main threat to IR standing as a social science is probably not the misuse of history, but the increasing amnesia that seems to be taking hold. A number of our colleagues, and particularly our colleagues across the water, seem to agree with Henry Ford and treat history as if it were mostly bunk. That way lies perdition for IR as a social science. The reason why we would be lost without history is very simple. Any science worthy of the name was aimed to cover the full universe of cases that are pertinent to it. The subject matter of IR is political and social life that plays out in a setting where there is a plurality of polities. More specifically, 
The subject matter of IR is sovereign and suzerain relations between polities as they existed in the past, as they exist in the present, as, as they have been and are imagined to exist. It follows that IR has three, and only three, sets of cases to pursue, namely the logics and effects of extant relations between polities, historical relations between polities, and imagined relations between polities. The upshot, who have a neglect of historical cases such as these, is that we have tens of thousands of years of history to cover. The discipline can yield round the study of the European state system. Much, but far from enough, has been done to live down this Eurocentrism by studying other systems. Having criticized, Went, uh, sorry, having criticized White, I should also make a point of acknowledging his pioneering insight into the study of state systems. There is more than enough left that has been hardly touched, though. We have, for example, the earliest sedentary polities, as we know them from Mesopotamia, Egypt, China, and Mesoamerica. As observed by Cambridge archaeologist Colin Renfrew, these polities are what he terms peer polities, by which he meant that it is not a question of one polity emerging singularly, but of an entire cluster emerging together. Key examples include the cities of Sumer and the, greatest, and the Greek polis, but we find the same phenomenon on this isle, with the Welsh polities from the post-Roman periods and with the kingdoms, or, to keep it in the archaeological parlance, chiefdoms of the Anglo-Saxon period. These relations have hardly been studied by our own. That is a shame. Archaeological literature has, until recently at least, thought of primary state formation as a process unfolding from the inside and out. If, alternatively, it turns out to have been first and foremost a relational process, then we should have been the ones to establish that. At the very least, once archaeologists suggested that the very emergence of polities is a, rel is a relational phenomenon, we should have rushed to the raid. Even a cursory glance at the material suggests that IR theories should have a lot to offer ongoing debates. IR has so far assumed that polities come first and that relations between them arise later. If we follow Renfrew, however, this is not the case. Polities arise as a result of relations. Relations are constitutive of polities from the very beginning. This means that IR's subject matter is foundational for political life in general, rather than being derivative of life inside different polities, as we have previously assumed. This, that is good news for those of us who want relational sociology to play a larger role within the discipline. The same point may be made about non-sedentary polities. More than two centuries ago, Hegel pronounced any state worthy of the name had to be sedentary. As a result, social sciences have neglected the study of non-sedentary polities. That is a huge omission, for it rules out the study of relations between polities older than 9,000 years old. It rules out institutionalized systems in places like the African savanna and the North American plains, and it rules out an almost 3,000-year-long uninterrupted steppe tradition of nomadic empires in Eurasia. These systems are interesting in their own right. They are, furthermore, crucial to the emergence of large-scale sedentary polities, which tended to grow out of relations between sedentaries and polities. I mentioned my interests in this topic to my six-year-old son over Christmas. He had watched the 1998 Disney film, Mulan, repeatedly, 
and felt empowered to chime in. Step people are strong but dumb, he volunteered. Judging from the lack of interest shown by IR, I would say that our sin of omission in not studying step polities condones my son's judgment for how are we to get rid of clearly wrong stereotypes if we do not produce new knowledge with which to fight them. Studying these historical relations more thoroughly would also give us a better handle on present conflicts involving nomads and sedentaries, like the ones in Darfur and Mali. Following the imperative to study the full set of cases available to us also has the added and extremely overdue advantage that it will live down the discipline's Eurocentrism, which is scientifically untenable. If history gives us something to think about, there is also the question of what we need to think with. To take a leaf from the debate about research programs, a scientific discipline worthy of the name must have at its disposal for data collection ways of ordering the data, ways of discussing the relationship between the data and the wider world, and debates about what that world consists of. Over the last quarter century, we have also evolved a philosophically involved IR literature on meta-theory, which is unprecedented and which has done a lot to consolidate IR as a social science. IR also has a well-developed set of theories. I think we are paying too little attention to the founders of the social sciences, Marx, Weber, Durkheim. I also think that it is wrong that we tend to rate most highly the books that deliver abstract theoretical arguments and nothing else. Social scientists are not primarily philosophers. Our niche is between history, which tends to fetishize empirics, and philosophy, which tends to fetishize metaphysics. For me, it follows logically that the social scientific ideal is the sustained theory-led empirical argument. This is indeed the classical view, as seen in Marx's dissection of 19th century European capitalism, Weber's analysis of the Protestant work ethic, or Durkheim's reading of religion in social life. It remains, if not the, then at least an ideal in the other social sciences. Perhaps this is just me being old school. But be that as it may, the present challenge to IR's, way, IR's ways of inquiry lies not primarily with our writing genres, our theory, or our meta-theories. <coughs> Excuse me. It is rather to do with the data collection and the ordering of data. Any science worthy of the name has a running debate about methods. As Weber puts it, the dilettante differs from the expert only in that he lacks a firm and reliable work procedure. Seventy years after Weber said that, Jean-François Lyotard still located the key defining trait of science in the work procedure, more specifically in its transparency, by highlighting the importance of referencing. In IR, the discipline's quantitative practitioners are passionate about the problems surrounding data programming in such a degree that one sometimes wonders if counting is not being substituted for thinking. But at least the quants do engage in a debate about method. Those of us who mostly do qualitative stuff, however, must be severely faulted for having largely neglected methods. Let me take a concrete example. 1995 saw an important institutionalizing move in IR the founding of the European Journal of International Relations. 
Take it, the chair would agree. In the preface to the first issue, founding editor Walter Carlsness laid down that manuscripts had to pay proper heed to epistemology, method, concepts, and normative issues. I would say that on the level of printed articles, it has. What it has not done is to foster a debate about method. To date, 73 issues have, been, have, have appeared. I count one, one article whose main concern is methods. That is something like 0.2% of the total. To cap it all, that article was published under the unique caption, Discussions and Debate. It remains the second most posted article in the history of the journal. Here is a strong indicator that articles on method are needed by the discipline's practitioners, but that the need is not heeded by journal editors. Our own millennium, always the avant-garde journal, is as so often a partial exception. It is, among other things, home to an ongoing debate about the pros and cons of drawing on ethnography in IR. But all in all, method remains something that is at best touched upon in the opening pages of monographs. Perhaps an incoming team of millennium editors might do something about this by making methods the topic of a special issue. (coughs) The third sense in which IR comes up a bit short as a social science concerns the strong influence of political concerns that we allow over our choice of subject matter. We tend to concentrate on phenomena that are politically important and agents that are politically powerful to the detriment of studying stuff that would have added to our general knowledge of the subject matter that we call our own. Social sciences are social, not only in the sense that their subject matter is social relations, but also in the sense that their knowledge production rests in a wider social web of relations. Still, in order to do the job, a science needs a certain integrity. I say a certain integrity, for there can be no such thing as absolute integrity. Writing emerged as a tool for registering work, which is to say that it began life as a surveillance strategy. Geography emerged as the handmaiden for ancient Greek military officers who needed knowledge of actual and prospective theaters of war. Ancient Greeks and the stray Ibn Khaldun aside, the beginnings of the social sciences are to be found in 16th and 17th century European efforts to acknowledge, to, to acquire knowledge about social worlds so that they could be turned into objects that might be ruled more efficiently and more effectively. The advisor to the king is a predecessor of the IR scholar. All this is, I suppose, fine. It is also fine that IR has a sizable subcommunity of defense intellectuals. It is not only fine, but positively laudable that IR scholars partake in the public debate about running affairs. After all, it is from the community at large that we take the resources necessary to do what we do. And so it is only fair that we give some of that knowledge back to a wider public. What would not be fine, however, where if we were, should lose sight of the fact that these applied pursuits are spin-offs of our scientific work rather than the core tasks that we are set to do. To the social science, to do social science is not to serve a certain political program, but to model the social and highlight inconsistencies and the costs of doing stuff in this fashion rather than that. Rob Walker issued a rather 
a related challenge to the discipline some 20 years ago when it charged that theories of international relations are more interesting as an aspect of contemporary world politics that need to be explained than as explanations of contemporary world politics. To put it in its starkest form, if IR is only the handmaiden of social forces, then it is not a social science. In light of this, if we ask why IR keeps on studying the practice of great power and pay less heed to to small and medium-sized powers, why is it that IR uses infinitely less energy studying historical cases than studying present-day cases Then the answer usually given, that it is important to be policy-relevant, comes across as a bit shallow. Being policy-relevant and being the handmaiden of specific forces, be that states, NGOs, or some imagined collective, amounts to the same thing, namely to produce instrumental knowledge. With the government paying an ever greater role in the allocation of research money, and with scholars within universities being under ever more pressure to apply for external funding, we must expect there to be ever more instrumentally produced knowledge. The risk is that we end up drowning in papers, reports, and articles that are of no interest to anybody a year after they were published. Let me now turn to the competition. To repeat a point, IR is the social science that specializes in political and social life that plays out in settings where there is a plurality of polities. Ours is a discipline about group conflicts and the social preconditions for and effects of alterity. As a social science, we follow Durkheim's dictum that social phenomena should be explained in terms of other social phenomena. To Durkheim himself, this meant that we should first do a functional analysis, that is, ask who fulfilled which task in which way. We should then do a causal analysis. As Virgil put it in the Georgics, Book 2, verse 490, rerum conoscere causas. To Weber, it meant that we should understand and explain. Social scientists are not the only people to attempt, to, to, <clears throat> to attempt scientific analysis of what we consider our subject matter. As pointed out already in 1934 by one of the greatest social scientists the world has seen, Marcel Mauss, if we want to understand human action, we need to take into consideration three systems. Psychological, the physiological, and the social. Psychology and biology are real competitors for IR, inasmuch as they share our key interest in group conflict and alterity. Psychology first. <clears throat> Freud was deeply interested in the logic of war, and he once made an attempt at psychoanalyzing an entire nation, So psychological interest in international relations goes back. However, psychology only took on urgency as a competitor when Kurt Lewin brought the insights of Gestalt psychology to social concerns and became decisive for the emergence of social psychology while doing so. One of his followers, Leon Festinger, published a book on cognitive dissonance in 1957 that spoke directly to IR concerns about how foreign policy decision makers Proceed. The key point was that rather than considering specific factors on their merits, humans are drawn towards understanding the world as a whole, and so they will tend to read out stuff, stuff that does not fit their preconditions. I don't know about you, but I experience this almost on a daily basis. <clears throat> One of the more sympathetic faces 
of the so-called behavioral revolution in IR in the 1960s and 70s was that these insights appeared in IR scholarship. One early example was Alexandre and Juliette's George's psychological study of key politicians. Such profiles are still drawn within political psychology, but they have disappeared from IR. This is a good thing, for such studies have a tendency to disappear in between the lobes of their subjects and out of sight. George's studies of the interplay of social and psychological factors in decision-making proved to be path-breaking, however, and did, as did Jervis's work on perception. There remain points of contention between IR understood as a social science and psychology. Jervis's conception of conception, concept of misperception is not a social one. If a group of humans consistently act like X in a situation of type Y with results of type Z, the point is that we are faced with a social type, not with individuals who misperceive. Of course, individuals have motivations. Of course, they match to outcomes. And of course, motivations are fair game for psychologists. But IR should nonetheless leave motivations alone. There is nothing to be gained for us from trying to induce motivations, which we as social scientists can only study indirectly via their social effects. There is simply too much individual stuff going on between the social impetus of motivation to the formation of motivation itself, and too much stuff between the presumed individual motivation and the observable social intention that results from it for this to be our terrain. There is, however, an alternative available route for us as social scientists to include psychology in our analyses. It goes through the study of emotions, which are a general human phenomenon and readily observable in social interaction. Work on emotions, be that as a factor in decision-making or in identity formation, is clearly on the up. Here, I think, we have a nice example of synergy between disciplines. There is also a rapidly growing engagement with the neurosciences in IR that take a number of forms, from a largely behavioralist one to one based on science studies. We should maintain the dialogue with psychology and learn from it, but we should do that by being true to the realm that we, as social scientists, have chosen to privilege, namely the social. Partial Durkheim, social facts should be explained by social facts. The relative importance of the psychological and the social systems in the object, is the object of lively debate, and that is how it should be. There is another contender that is much more pressing, I think. I think a major debate between biology and IR is brewing. Humans are meaning-producing animals. We may not be unique in this respect. Chimpanzees certainly learn, form alliances, and make worlds. And the trend in animal research, not only on primates, but also on, on birds and insects, is in the direction of updating their cognitive skills. Nonetheless, the sci social scientist's wager is that socially produced meaning, be that in the form of culturally specific interest for maximization, republicanism, apotheosis, or whatever, is so strong amongst humans as to be the decisive factor in human life. In that, we are unique until further notice. And in this sense, Dilte's work was a precondition for the emergence of the social sciences. I began this lecture by evoking Marcel Mauss and his suggestion that human action has their sources in three different systems, 
the physiological, the psychological, and the social. I used Morse's insight to raise the question of how they should, be, they should meet in scholarly conversation. Morse himself invoked these systems because he had other fish to fry. He wanted to make what he called body techniques and what we today call embodied practices, an object not only of physiological and psychological, but also of social study. For Morse, the three systems meet in the agentic body. Morse succeeded in making the body an object of study for the social sciences, but he also met with opposition. Half a century ago, Jacques Derrida suggested that we bracket the material, or as he formulated it, put it under erasure. Since then, it has become a commonplace to put physiological body under erasure and to treat it simply in its performative aspect. Judith Butler has probably delivered the fullest justification for such an approach. This has been a productive move. Inspired by Butler, I ask scholars like Sacco and Weber at long last began to theorize the bodies important to IR. Problem remains, though. In IR theory, the physical body remains under erasure. I would argue that as a discipline, it is just about time to excavate it. Let me use an example close to hand, namely myself. Always a favorite example. What you see before you is a performative body. Me, not mine, me. It is a body that would not have existed if it had not been for the physiological fact that I have a necro-kidney implanted six years ago. The physiological body remains an ontic precondition for the performing body to exist. The two are not identical phenomena. They are both relevant for our social existence, and we cannot go on putting the physiological body, and by extension, biology and psychology, under erasure forever. A theory of the body that only takes into consideration the social system and leaves out the importance of the physiological and psychological systems for the human condition is by definition incomplete. As social scientists, we are supposed to privilege the social system, but we are not supposed to take the division of, of scientific labor to the extreme of simply forgetting about other ways of producing knowledge about our subject matter. An exclusively social discussion about the body is doomed to remain exactly disembodied. Having been in dialysis and too tired to perform much, 20 hours a day, it seems clear to me that we should not forever follow Butler and entourage and willfully forget about the physical body and biology altogether. It must be brought back in. The question is how? On the opposite extreme from Butler, we find those who contest the view that meaning production is key to human life and want to privilege biology. Nietzsche makes the point in his genealogy of morals that nothing has only one origin and that there is usually amongst them a dirty one, a pudenda origo. In the case of the social sciences, the dirty origin is Herbert Spencer. Spencer was a key influence on early social science. He was a biology-privileging social Darwinist, and here we have the reason why he has been largely read out of the canon and has shorn Britain of the founder of the social sciences into the bargain. There is a lesson here about what happens to those who are loud, confident, and wrong. It is neither theoretically nor empirically inevitable that an interest in biology should lead to social Darwinism. 
At the time of Spencer, another key natural scientist in Britain was Count Peter Kropotkin. His major work, Mutual Aid, draws on the knowledge about the natural word of the day to demonstrate how the human species has, has evolved not by way of conflict, but by way of cooperation. To this day, we find amongst natural scientists debates that are eerily familiar to social scientists. Is human cooperation zero-sum or positive-sum? How important is the role of environmental factors? Over the last decades, people like Edmund Wilson, Stephen Pinker, and Richard Dawkins have put these concerns back on the map under the names of social biology and other evolutionary approaches to, the cultural, and to cultural and social life. Of particular interest to us are the approaches that emerged out of biology only to merge with psychology and present themselves as evolutionary psychology. It would be unprofessional of us simply to ignore other attempts at understanding the issues that those, than those we call our own. Once again, I think a nutshell illustration is in order. 2004 was arguably the year when the major biological theme of evolution arrived in IR in force, in the guise of evolutionary psychology. Dom Johnson published Overconfidence and War. Leaning on the likes of Festinger and Jervis, Johnson demonstrated how predictions of loss and victory depend, among other things, on calculations about relative strength in the present. A recent article in International Security sharpened the argument into a fully-fledged theory of war. There is no doubt that these are social analyses. The explanatory work is done by comparing social actions in a specific kind of situation and hitching it to an argument that in situation X we are likely to get outcome Y, whereas in situation A we are likely to get outcome B. Synthetically, I mentioned that Johnson's argument is unabashedly functionalist, and for that he may, and I think should, be faulted. But there have been debates about the pros and cons of functionalism in the social sciences from the very beginning, and they are likely to go on. So that in itself is not enough to, to, to <coughs> discard the man of the membership of the social sciences. Compare Johnson's analysis to another book published in 2004, Bradley Thayer's Darwin and International Relations. On its very first page, we read that the progress of biological science is not nothing short of revolutionary. It is an, as important for understanding human behavior as the great discoveries of Newton or Einstein are for the physical world. This is a non sequitur. Biology may or may not revolutionize our knowledge of human nature, and this may lead to a reassessment of biology's importance for behavior. But that prospect is very far from being a necessity. For all we know, ongoing biological research in the forms of epigenetics or heritable changes in gene expression may not upgrade the importance of our biological hardwiring at all, but may, on the contrary, confirm the importance of social factors. A key moment in epigenetics came in 1999, when a group of biologists performed an experiment on mice which demonstrated that administering folic acid to a mother mouse changed the color of her fur. That was unremarkable. That she proceeded to pass on the new color to her young certainly was remarkable, though, because it meant that the folic acid had modified her genes. Subsequent research has demonstrated similar effects in humans. 
The suspicions raised by observations that two of our genes seem to have evolved from viruses have confirmed, have firmed into an increasing body of knowledge which suggests that social factors are indeed inheritable. Lamarckism is back. Get ready for a new round of the never-ending nature-nurturing debate. Where that debate will lead, we do not know. And that insight is enough to conclude that Thayer is wrong when, by what may only be termed a sleight of hand, he argues that evolutionary theory provides a scientific foundation for realism and rational choice, unquote. Spencer and Thayer aside, that is an empirical question. The key point in our connection comes, however, when Thayer explicitly attacks Durkheim's position that social facts should be explained in terms of other social facts. Thayer explicitly leaves behind the social as explanance here. One thing is to be interested in the interplay between psychological and biological factors in order to understand the social. As is Johnson, it is another thing altogether simply to bracket the social and seek to explain social outcomes in terms of biology, as does Thayer. That, I would argue, is untenable, for it leaves out a logically necessary link for our understanding of the constitution of the social, namely the social itself. One would have thought that a student of IR would not have been blind either to this or to the political results that have previously accrued from letting biology overshadow the social in our understanding of human action. But no. Thayer is blind to all this. In a recent piece, he states the following. Brace yourselves. Whether an aging Europe is able to integrate its Muslim populations and reassert heretofore, heretofore dominant political principles, economic practices, and cultural beliefs, or Europe's Muslims integrate indigenous Europeans into the dimitude of Eurabia, identified by Bart Yeor, remains to be seen. The work referred to, Bartier's book, Eurabia, is not a scientific work. It is a classic political conspiracy theory built on sources that are so secret that, to the scientific eye, they remain non-existent. I take a particular interest in Bartier's uh, Bartier and her book, for here we have the key source of inspiration for my compatriot, the heriostratically infamous countryman, Anders Bering Breivik. On the 22nd of July, 2011, Breivik released a manifesto that followed the train of thought outlined by Bart Rior. Then he went on a murder spree on a tiny island where hundreds of children had assembled to take part in a youth camp organized by Norway's ruling party at the time, the Labour Party, killing over 60 children, most of them at point blank, Needless to say, Thayer is not directly responsible for the evil deeds of someone who read a book that Thayer, too, has quoted. It should also be needless to say, but clearly it's not, that the kind of bond between biological thinking and right-wing terrorism that Thayer perpetuates was a staple of 20th century life and is an ongoing concern, not only in Norway, but throughout the world. As I have tried to demonstrate... Thayer's brand of biological thinking is, is questionable on scientific grounds. It is also morally uninformed and politically dangerous. The overall point regarding biologically and 
psychologically informed thinking as a challenge to AI is straightforward. A number of developments in these disciplines, particularly in the areas of neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, and epigenetics, are important and politically enriching for social sciences such as IR. Contra Butler and followers, biology has to be brought back in play. As exemplified here by Bradley Thayer's work, however, the original Spencerian sense of the social sciences are still tainting what is otherwise certain to be a fruitful scientific exchange. The issue is not if we should engage biological and psychological thinking about our subject matter, but how we should do it. To conclude, as a social science, IR has its work cut out for it. To do our job, which is to understand what makes relatively stable social relations between polities possible in the first place, and the effects that such stabilization has on social forms and social outcomes. <coughs> we need to study more cases with more finely honed methods, with a certain autonomy, and with an eye to insights hatched in other parts of academia. There exists a whole swathe of peer polity systems that we have not even begun to look at. We lack a proper debate about qualitative methods. We do not stand sufficiently tall under the pressure from social factors which may colonize our knowledge production. Scholars in other fields who take an interest in our subject matter are making interesting advances that we need to discuss what to do with. The good news is that we have the human power to do this. Since I was a student, the number of practitioners of our discipline has increased at least fourfold. A number of these have the languages and the cultural competence needed to round out the universal cases. As to methods, I suppose those of us who are dissatisfied will simply have to write our own books. And when it comes to the challenge of biology, it has been with us since the beginning. A way to live down the biologistic idea that genes program us is not to ignore the findings of biology, but to read up on what the more sophisticated biologists have to say about the matter and meet them in the stance that remains key to any scientific being in the world, namely the dialogical one. Thank you. Thanks very much for that. Uh, a very fascinating talk. I'll give a second while people who want to go um, now can remove themselves and then we'll have an opportunity for question and answer. Yeah, I'll sit. It's fine. Something about the controversy in international relations theory between traditional literary historical approaches and behavioral scientific approaches. Could you, could, would you care to be Could you say, can you hear me? Yes. Can you, could you say something about the controversy in international relations theory between um, literary historical approaches and behavioral scientific approaches? Did you follow me? Yes, I did. Thank you. 
customarily, uh, we tell the story, we tell out one another the story of IR in terms of great debates. I am not a big fan of that way of telling the disciplinary history, but that's, that's the custom, and uh, I have already pledged allegiance to custom, so I suppose I have to stand by that. And the second debate was between people who call themselves traditionalists. I don't know whether they would have sort of identified with your idea of literary historian methods, literary historic methods, but you know it would be in that vein of telling narratives about stuff. On the one hand, and the uh, and uh, and uh, and people like David Singer, behavioralists, on the other, and that debate was never settled. It led to bifurcation in the field, where qualitative and quantitative uh, versions of, of 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 scholarship face one another over and to what I think is an ever increasing gulf. I mean, an article came out trying to splice, splice the two, and it was called Hands Across the Abyss, which I think tells you a lot. Um, and I couldn't help myself from some sort of having a dig at, quant uh, at qualitative, exclusively qualitative work because, uh, to me, it seems that they are quite often a question of using mathematics without thinking through what kind of unsuspecting material they are throwing those methods, mathematical methods at. Um, I would argue that in political science, one was inches away from having the same kind of split that one had in sociology with the coming of sociology of knowledge in the 1990s, but was saved from that split by the emergence of a movement of young doctoral students called Perestroika that opened up more space for narrative methods or, you know, a more sort of literary historical way of approaching things. Uh, and it's my feeling, and other people may disagree, it's my feeling that we have reached a standoff in IR where quants and qualitative people are feeling one another out, but nobody's really winning because uh, there is very little uh, in terms of, 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 of debate between the two. And, of course, I regret that. So the article, Hands Across the Abyss, should be followed up by other articles. Again, I have to be true to my dialogical stance. Hello. Hello. Thank you for the wonderful presentation. I have uh, two questions. First, uh, concerning the methodology. Um, you had mentioned that there isn't much of a discussion uh, about methodology among the qualitative researchers in social sciences, and you're absolutely right. But I was wondering, is it primarily because a lot of the focus when you conduct qualitative research has shifted to the researcher, the reflexive uh, dimension of the researcher. So the focus is on uh, the interpretation of the results. And some are of the opinion maybe that is a better way in, uh, when we conduct qualitative research. And how do we define the boundaries? Because that's also another big debate in case studies in social science when you take case studies in international relations. My second question um, is with regards to the connection you made between right-wing terror and biological thinking. Now, as someone who sort of reads and follows uh, the election campaigns and the literature which is available in public, one gets the impression that the contemporary far right, at least in the European context, is a lot to cultural and anthropological rather than biological. It's more 
perceiving the other as, as a threat to their way of life, and particularly in a lot of the social welfare states, if I may say, a liberal progressive state. So could you please elaborate a little bit more? Thank mm. you. Mm. Mm. Well, when it comes to methodology and the, and the, uh, and the so should we say, inward turn, um, I actually welcome that. I think feminist work has done a lot of, of, of path-breaking work from what is actually often misunderstood but is a very simple precondition. And if I read this correctly, I mean, I'm particularly, sort of, particularly impressed by a book called In a Different Voice. Uh, the idea is simply that if a person is the effect of a social structure, and if you can only study social structures by their effects, then studying yourself and how you've been formed should lead to an, an insight into social structure, which means that methods like memory work could be pressed into service. And I couldn't resist from dabbling a tiny little bit in that myself uh, when I was talking about my renal failure, uh, just to sort of give an implicit sort of tidbit of, of that. Now... This is not the only way of doing reflexive research. And I mentioned the debate in, uh, in, uh, in Millennium about the use of ethnography in IR, which started by uh, a researcher by the name of, a Romanian researcher by the name of, of, of Wander Rusty, arguing that anyone who did ethnographic research should do this, should use themselves as membranes in order to understand the structures they study. I would not go along with that. One could also do it in a more Weberian analytical way and think ideal typically about what one studies. But one should not be to the detriment of the other. These are two good ways of studying social stuff. One should ask no more. As to the right-wing terrorism, I think you are partially right in observing that uh, there is a turn from a biologist to a culturalist way of thinking about this when it comes to right-wing is overall. My concern was more specific, which was that the kind of rhetoric that is used when it comes to the importance of biology for human life has again and again and again, and I would say since, uh, since, uh, since the late 1700s, now suddenly, I can't remember the name of the Frenchman who, Chris, could you please help me? Um, ah, it'll come. You know, you know when, when, when one left the idea that climate determined what happened in different places, Montesquieu's idea, this was taken over by... Um, oh, no, uh, no, pink. No, I'm talking about the Frenchman writing about this in the late 1700s. D, 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 D. Yeah. Okay. It'll, no, no, he was not. He was... He was no. Okay, let's just leave that to one side. It'll, 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 it'll come back, Okay. <laughs> Diderot was not big on race. Um, but anyhow, I mean, that, that, that whole idea of, of, of putting all your explanatory eggs in the racial basic basket, we know, we have very clear knowledge about that has led to. And throwing yourself at writing articles where you try to apply the same kind of thinking to the same kind of questions and thinking that you can avoid the racist stuff that has been going on when this has been done earlier, is untenable. I refer to Einstein's understanding of madness, which is doing the same thing again under the same circumstances and expects the result to be different. 
Jive, I'm sorry we couldn't help you with the French philosopher. Mm -hmm. Uh, A great talk, but I came out of it feeling that in order to do international relations, one needed to be able to do archaeology, biology, history, psychology, ethnography, linguistics, philosophy, and I think probably one want to add economics to that. Uh, Is this a a viable program? Uh, Can we... It's surely the division of the social science that took place 100 uh, years ago or 150 years ago has something in its favor in terms of uh, producing manageable questions, even though you're dividing a single reality. Absolutely. Uh, And... uh Freedom is insight into necessity. So, uh, so I think this is a necessity and we have to live with it. But we shouldn't be comfortable about being in that kind of thing. Everything I said was said on the level of us as a discipline. There is no way any one individual can do all these things. And you can't follow these debates in any depth. But as a discipline, I think we should have people who are following some of this stuff and responding to it. You know, it's not too much to ask. You know, the last time I was at the ISA, there were almost 8,000 people present. If you add people, nobody knows how many practitioners of IR we have. It may be up to 20,000 worldwide. Does, does anyone have a figure sort of at the fingertips? I mean, this is enough people to spread out a bit. And, you know, it's enough for us to sort of have interfaces to, to all the things that you mentioned. And... Uh, and uh, I don't think that we need this in order to do a piece of IR research, but as I, th- I think as a discipline, we should somehow be equipped to, to do this. Um. Hi, Ivor. Uh, thanks for that. Um, I just have a question. Sorry. Hi. Hi. Um. <laughs> No, I, I, because I've been thinking about these themes ever since the Millennium Conference that we're on to something as a discipline that we've recognized the role of the material with the new materialism. And I'm curious about your thoughts about, in particular, it seems that we've recognized that identity is not just a cultural or ideational phenomenon. There is the interaction between like the material and the physical. And we got a ton of research about you know, the role of the body and the physical in this portrayal and this narration of identity and the impact of, of bodies, you know, in terms of, especially we get this with, like, I think, feminist work on gender and wartime, you know, sexual violence, for example. But I think this could be extended to other areas, and I think you're onto something with the Judith Butler reference and the performativity of identity. So I'm just curious if you could have something more to say about, you know, the interaction between the physical and meaning-making um, and identity in that respect and the body. Well, you see, I have been, in my own work, I've been, I've been using a method that I would not uh, recommend to any of you students, which is that I have put down on, on, on paper outrageously sort of uh, extreme sort of uh, ways of looking at things, and then I have retracted afterwards. And the result is that people who don't follow this process, and you can't expect them to, you know, read the, first, read the first sort of draft that I circulate and think, oh my God, the man is mad, right? Um, so it might be a good thing to sort of whittle it down a bit before you show it even to the people you think you can trust, right? Um, 
But one of the results of this way of working has been that when I threw myself at the textual turn in the late 80s and used the 90s on that, I came to a point where I felt that you know, I had done enough work on the preconditions for action and I wanted to approach action itself. So I turned from looking at discourse, which is the forma- what you need to understand in order to understand the formation of statements, statements to the study of practice, which is the study of what is being done. And in the same fashion, I think it was high time that Butler and others bracketed the physical in order to get a, a, a focus on the body. After all, let's not forget that they were the first ones to do it. But again, I think it's time to take a step back from that privileging of that kind of thing and to open up what has not been looked at for a while. And I cannot, for the life of me, see that one should be to the detriment of the other. I think the way I read the first pages in Bodies That Matter, which I think is the key work of Butler's in this respect, um, what she's saying there, again, as I mean, on the level of on the level of the discipline and on the level of the individual researcher, what I read her to say, and this may be a wrong reading, but it's my reading, is that she wants to bracket this in order to highlight the stuff. And that's totally legitimate. That's what theory is for highlighting something and leave everything else in the dark. But that does not mean that others should not go back and compliment the stuff. Was that reasonably clear? Oh, thank you. You mentioned, Ivor, that relational sociology should have a larger place within the discipline, but you didn't mention Marx and IR Marxist scholarship and the Marxist tradition, which is... Curious, what place do you see for that tradition within your vision of the future of IR? I don't want to turn this into a prayer meeting, but I think the answer to this question, as to the latter question, is autobiographical. I was born in 1959, and I caught the tail end when I started university of the Maoist period in Norwegian Norwegian intellectual life. Maoists were strong in, in dominating the debates, which meant that if I had been born three years before, I would have sort of gone through a hell of a lot of study cycles where we would have read capital in German up and down and back and forth. Now, I saw the ruinous results of this kind of of, of reading Marx to the detriment of absolutely everything else. This is how I came into the discipline. So I'm in the curious situation that all my... Yeah, no, not all, because there are older, older people as well, but all the newer main influences on my work have been Marxists at some point, but I have not. Right? So I suppose that's specifically a post-Marxist thing. But that's the reason. And I did mention Marx as one of the founders, and I did mention his work on his home turf as exemplary. But again, speaking as a Russianist, what happened later, a number of the branches of, of Marxist study that grew out of that, among other things, the one I know best, where Marxism, Marxism has seen not only as a science, but as the science of the human existence, was a bit mistaken. But, you know, I don't think we should discuss that because I think we all agree. Mm -hmm. Or most of us, anyway. Mm -hmm. Other questions? I have one that I want to ask, if I can abuse the chair's privilege for a moment, and that's to do with the issue of methods, which you highlighted so strongly. I'd like to be a bit more specific about what it is that we're not doing and that we ought to do in relation to 
qualitative methods in mm-hmm. IR? Where do you see the gaps? Where precisely do you see the problem? Let me begin by situation. If you follow Weber, and I think we should follow Weber, I mean, of the older God, he's my main man, um, it is impossible to throw yourself at any research job without looking at the preconditions with which you come in. And I see precious little situa- sit- sit- situating of the researcher in all that. I think, again, we should follow feminists in actually putting more weight on where we, on situated knowledge and where we see this stuff from. And this has become even clearer to me since I took up my chair, because in Norway you are in an intellectual environment where people share a lot of social preconditions for knowledge formation, whereas here, in both the seminar groups that I, that, that I, I have at master's level, uh, there, are, there are more than 10 nationalities involved. And that makes for a very much, very much more of a pluralistic approach to knowledge formation, and that reminds us that this is an open and, and, and contested field. So that would be my first thing. My second thing would be in the, sim- the very simple hands-on question of how to do stuff. The debate about, you know, what is the data collection? How is the data collection looking? Now, if you open an anthropological or, so- or sociological journal, almost any journal, there would be articles specifically on this. And why? I think I tried to sort of answer that by quoting Weber, that in the final analysis, this is what makes science science that we are clear about how we proceed. Uh, I, I, do, I wouldn't go so far as to, to, to talk about testability because that is a fraught terrain for the social scientists, but being clear in what we're doing is super important. And I don't think that we always do that. We, we assume a lot, so we don't bear the bones of what we're doing in writing articles in the degree that we should, I think. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, I have a question. You, you mentioned epigenetics and the role of emotion in decision-making and mm-hmm. your scientific studies. Um, I, I, could you just elaborate on the link between that, um, those studies and that body of knowledge um, and, and international relations, if you could? I, maybe for the layman, as I am. This gives me a chance to practically perform the answer to Chris Brown's question about the need to know a hell of a lot, because this is a field that I find intriguing, but that I don't know all that much about. But as far as I've understood from debates with colleagues who are working in this field, the thing is that there is gooey around genes. This is not very scientific, but uh, <laughs> as you can hear, this is not my forte, but that this impinges on what's actually happening to the genes. I thought, and what I was taught when I started reading the basics of this as a student, was that Lamarck was dead. And coming to this from a Russianist, Sovietologist background, I thought that Lysenko was sort of simply mistaken in all possible kinds of ways. Well, this research, which is a thriving program, actually comes up with the suggestion that this is not the case, that social factors impinge on the very hardware that we're taking to the job. Now, if this is the case, then we cannot simply assume that the hardware will dictate that any one way of living our social lives and ordering ourselves as communities can be taken for granted. 
And the key point about sort of wheeling out the first quote from, 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 from Darwinism and, and international, international relations by Bradley Thayer was to demonstrate that people who are writing biologistically actually do this. They just say, here, look what the natural scientists say. The world is realist. I mean, there are a number of good arguments that the world is realist. As a Foucauldian, you know, I think that power realism is absolutely called for. But I don't think that biology is one of them, particularly given new research like epigenetics. Was that on the ball or, or on wicket, as you say? Or? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, I, I, I see. Right. Well, this is coming now from, from people who are writing in the fringes of the discipline, and I am quite sure, having seen what happens in other s- social sciences, that this debate is about to explode, and I think we should be ready for it, and one of the ways of being ready for it is to know at least the very general outlines of what psychologists like yourself and biologists are actually doing. Thanks, Ivor. I've been sitting here wondering whether there's a custom as to whether or not former Montague Burton professors are allowed to put questions to their successors. And I've decided that there probably isn't, and therefore I should start one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm going to start this in the the positive mode. Um, You told us quite a lot about how international relations should relate to disciplines other than social science ones. Mm -hmm. You didn't say a great deal about how it should or does relate to the disciplines normally thought of as being within the social sciences. And I'm wondering whether you could elaborate on that a bit. You counterpointed it to history somewhat, um, but it might also have been argued, for example, that you know, international relations simply filled up a space that sociology forgot to occupy. Um, or it might be argued that international relations doesn't fit as a social science because it's not functionally defined. Mm-hmm. All the others, economics, politics, law, have very particular functional definitions of what they are. Mm-hmm. International relations is just about the big end of everything. Um, and therefore doesn't kind of fit into the social science domain in the same way that, that others do. Um, so I'm just wondering whether you have any thoughts on, on how it relates to the other social sciences. Mm-hmm. My master and the previous holder of the chair, John Vintner, did I say master? That was interesting. My master. Hmm. An interesting slip of tongue. Uh, my mentor and the previous holder of this chair, John R. Vincent, uh, thought about IR as the... Uh, this is where the master came in, the master discipline of the social sciences. He thought that that would be the sort of overarching sort of social science that would take insights from all the different social sciences and bring them into sort of conversation. Um, certainly, we are needed by the other social sciences because we do traditionally do alterity and group stuff, and with globalization, that becomes ever more present. So that would be my argument. Now, reading this lecture was actually quite interesting. Sort of writing this this lecture was interesting because, as always, I started out thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to fill up this space? And I ended up by overfulfilling the plan, as the Russians would say. And I had a three-page section there, an attack on political science, where uh, where I started out by saying that David Easton, is the beast in the apocalypse, uh, as seen from my point of view, because 
he just said, let's bracket everything that has to do with how we can have a social setting in the first place. Let's just take the state for granted and stop talking about the state and then talk about the specific forms of government that are actually readily there to be studied. And I think, I mean, for one thing, I think that is a very Westernocentric move because, as I can witness to in my own experience, it means that if you start by government, you start by government of a specific kind, namely a check of balances kind of government, which means that you can't study any other systems than the U.S. and certain European systems and arguably Indian and other democratic systems. But even there, it's hard. So he sure political science of the possibility of, of, of studying other political systems, I think. And the other thing was that uh, I think it was a sh a, 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 an unabashedly functionalist move to ask which tasks are being done by which governments and with what effects. I think our study should be a constitutive study of how it is possible to have society and, and how, how, how it is possible to have a kind of society that involves different polities in the first place. So uh, those would be two approaches to the question. I had actually ex expected you to sort of give me a bit of support here on uh, the importance of looking at history, because you are the one, and this is also something I left out from the draft, you and Richard Little are the ones who wrote the book that said that we needed to look at all 40, the last 40,000 years of history. Couldn't you have asked me about that instead? <laughs> Thanks, Oliver, for that. Um, as kind of a strange follow-up to the last question, um, you mentioned the physical body as in the study of biology, but what about the study of the physical outside as in geography? Do you see that as part of your research agenda? Huh. Yes, that, uh, that's... That ended up in a footnote. I mean, one of the best examples, I think, from the 90s of IR fruitfully meeting another science was the engagement over critical geopolitics. I think that worked. And uh, again, it was a question of loosening up the idea of physicality, or not physicality, of material, of material nature and terrain, and look at space as a virtual spaces and physical spaces and the relationship between the two. So uh, I suppose that makes the answer a yes, doesn't it? No. Mm -hmm. Are there any other questions? Are we waiting for drinks, by the way? Well, I was going to say, if there aren't, there are drinks mm -hmm. waiting for us. Um, I think uh, then we'll, we'll call the occasion to a close. I'd like to thank Ivor very much for his very stimulating talk and to all of you for the questions and for the discussion that's followed. Please do come along to the fourth floor of the old building for a drink and to continue the discussion. But in the meantime, please can we thank Ivor for his... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.